0: Talking with one of the church members yesterday, and uh, the woman was saying how great Stephen's messages are. And she can't wait to hear him <laughs> on Sunday. And I said, "Well, um, I'm I'm preaching tomorrow." And she said, "Oh," <laughs> and uh, and that was my wife. So. <laughs> pray together. Lord God, we, uh, we so need you to be with us today, to open our hearts, to give us understanding, to meet us uh, where we are, that there are things in our lives that need to be confessed. We, we need you to draw them up out of our hearts so that we will want to confess them. And we would want you to give us the, the desire to do the things that you want us to do that we would do them joyfully and freely and ask that you would cause this sermon to aid in that regard in some small way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So my text today is in your bulletin and up here it's Matthew 16, verses 24 through 27. And uh, I'll read it, it says, uh, then Jesus told his disciples, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So I wanna to talk to you this morning about discipleship, about um, uh, the different aspects of discipleship that challenge all of us. The, uh, the price of discipleship, the uh, promise of discipleship, and the praise of discipleship. And uh, speaking just generally, I think there are probably two large views of following Jesus, which is another way of saying discipleship. One, is, one view is that it just involves a lot of misery, suffering, and drudgery. And you can just see people standing out, pulling a long cross down the street, and that's discipleship, that's following Jesus. And the other view is that, well, it's for those who have gone to seminary and our professional clergymen or women, uh, but it's not for me, the everyday layperson. It's got to be the people with special training or special call- calling. I mean, it's their job. They're supposed to do it even if it does involve uh, misery, suffering and drudgery. And we can pray for them and give money, but we want them to do the misering-ing and the drudgerying and the long-sufferinging part. Uh, But this text today gives a completely different understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, which is what discipleship is, following Jesus and helping others uh, do likewise. So I wanna start off um, just saying, you know, uh, after Jesus's resurrection, he said this to all his disciples that is, all his followers. Go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, and the word nations just means people groups, like the French, the Persians, the Spaniards, people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So following Jesus, for a believer is not an option. It it is a mandatory duty for every believer. Uh, To follow Jesus means to make disciples of all family groups. The Kims are a family group. The Geras are a family group. And the word make, make disciples, means to instruct or to teach. And we either tell people or we show people. That's the basis of instruction. You tell or you demonstrate. So today's text, together with the words of encouragement, which were read earlier, establish two things about following Jesus. First, there is a substantial cost, it's hard. And second, the benefits of following Jesus far, far outweigh the cost of doing so. Because these benefits demonstrate God's extravagant grace. And if you think about God's grace, think about a picture of Niagara Falls and standing underneath it with the biggest container you can. And it's just, it just smashes the bottom out of your container because it is so overwhelming. And that's what God's grace is like. So I want to take a moment to start off to talk about the price of discipleship. It says in the text, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Notice it doesn't really say anything about suffering, drudgery, or misery. Following Jesus is hard, but it's not drudgery and it's not misery. In fact, it's turning away from drudgery and misery into something new and thrilling. So let's look at what the text actually says. We must deny ourselves. We must take up the cross and we must follow Jesus. So what does it mean to deny yourself? First, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean becoming religious. You know, we all have the image of like the church lady from Saturday Night Live, or whatever your image of being religious, you can throw that out the window. Jesus is not talking about becoming religious. It doesn't mean identifying with any particular political party or social movement. Throw that out of your mind. Jesus never addressed those issues in his time. And it doesn't mean a- adopting Western culture. Jesus didn't teach that. And it doesn't mean giving up fun stuff, whatever fun stuff may be for you. But here's what it does mean, or at least the meaning includes the following. first. It means to have your identity rooted in Christ. You must have your identity rooted in Christ. All those things that influence who we are, how we see ourselves, must be pulled through the filter of the gospel. Race, socioeconomic background, family culture, social culture, or our education must be pulled through the filter of the gospel. Um, I, I remember reading uh, two years ago the story of uh, a former grand dragon in the Ku Klux Klan who came to Christ. And God did a marvelous work in his house and there in the south, God called him to be the head pastor of a predominantly black church. And the congregation, absolutely, you can find the story on, on the internet. The congregation absolutely loves him, and he absolutely loves the church. But his identity had to change fundamentally from being a guy who hated blacks and what it meant to be white. It had to change to be a man who followed Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. Whatever your identity is, whether you're down on yourself because of your past, whether you went to jail, whether you had prison time or whether you had failures in the past, that's all got to go through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you've had that proverbial golden spoon in your mouth and you've had success after success after success and you're a little bit prideful about it. That has to go through the filter of the gospel because we are all sinners before the cross of Christ and we are all equally dependent on him for everything. Second, not only must our identity uh, be rooted in Christ, but Christ gives us a new wanter and we should rejoice in it. That is, the things that we want or used to want, God comes along and changes those things. It's still right to want fun stuff. Uh, Only now, Jesus changes what we consider to be fun stuff. Uh, I remember before I was a Christian, I got down on my knees and I prayed to God and I said, God, I don't even know if you exist, but I do know I don't like to go to church, I don't like to read the Bible, I don't like to sing hymns, and I don't like to hang with Christians. That's a quote. But I do love to play squash, which is like racquetball. So if you are who you say you are, make me love these things more than I love to play squash. God absolutely answered that uh, prayer. I haven't played squash in over a decade. I love to go to church, I love to sing hymns, I love to read the Bible and I love to hang with Christians. He changed my wanter and that's what he does and that's part of what it means to follow Jesus, to take up the cross. Third, it means putting our will into Jesus' hands. Um, Jesus causes us to want to surrender our will to him. Just a small, very secular example. This summer, one of my externs, uh, who is Ethiopian, married by birth, married an Italian by birth in North Lake Tahoe, and they wanted me to officiate the wedding. I don't know if you've ever heard Ethiopian music, but it is the vocal equivalent of marijuana. (laughs) It is just intoxicating, and I sat there uh, with my suit on it, and I said, I am not going to dance. I mean, and they started putting on this music, and you know, next thing I'm, I'm tapping, and I was come on, no, 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 no. Next thing I'm, I know, there's this one song that comes on, and the music is even more intoxicating than everything else. That, so I get up and I start dancing, and no one tells me, no one tells me that the song is 17 minutes long. 17 minutes. I have it on my iPod, but it's, and and when I say that we put our will into Jesus' hands, it's not like, oh, Jesus, here, dang it. It's just the opposite. He woos with this love, this kindness, this goodness, this grace, this mercy, and you find yourself tapping your foot, and the next thing you know, you find that it's much easier putting your will in his hands than trying to keep your will in your own hands. So that's a a sense I'm trying to give you of what it means to deny yourself. But what does it mean to take up the cross daily? First, it means to process all the issues of our lives through the gospel. That means every high point and every low point must be viewed through the gospel. You go through life trusting Jesus in good times and in bad and when things are good, you are grateful and humble knowing Jesus is the author thereof. And when things are bad, you persevere in humility knowing that Jesus is with you and will guide you through the difficulty. So if for example, um, like what never happens in my household, Dana and I have an argument about something she's done wrong. <laughs> about something I've done wrong. And uh, part of me, one, doesn't want to recognize my part, my role, and I don't want to be the first one to apologize. Uh, and I don't mind being the second. but I really, it, it bugs me being the first. Um, and yet Jesus says to me, you're the head of the household. But what about what she did? I don't care about what she did. I want to talk about what you did. And I find myself so many times going and looking at the cross and seeing what I've done and what I could have done to make the situation better. And my job in part is to present my wife a living bride without blemish, which is how Christ presents uh, the church to the Father. So I go... And I generally say, I'm sorry. But after a while, I can really reconcile uh, with my wife. Um, so we learn to look at the things that happen to us through the gospel, whether they're little things or big things. I'll give you an, an example. Um, that uh, So I had... Uh, prostate cancer surgery in February. I'm in the hospital. And I've got tubes coming out of everywhere. Don't ask. Everywhere. And um, but and I'm, a, I'm a nobody. I'm in this hospital room by myself. The nurses are very attentive to my every need since I can't even go to the bathroom without help. And I'm sitting there at two o'clock in the morning just marveling that everybody is treating me with such respect. Even though when you look at me, I'm weak. Uh, I haven't had a shower in two days, so I don't, I'm not a rose, okay? I'm I'm not a rose. I've had just the sponge bath. And I'm sitting there, and, and, and all of a sudden, Jesus says to me, when I was on the cross, no one ministered to me. No one brought me water. No one cared. And everybody who walked by laughed, they ridiculed, and they made jokes. And I thought, my goodness, that God would do for me uh, and suffer for me in this way when he is the Lord of the universe and people are treating me and nobody with respect, but here is the living Lord of the universe hanging on the cross, facing only the ugliest derision. Um, And it made me see my hospital stay in a completely different light. And I sat there at 2 o'clock in the morning just weeping that Jesus Christ had died for me. And all of a sudden, my pain was put in context. Second, to take up your cross, again, goes back to this concept of rooting our... uh, identity in Christ. We must absolutely see ourselves as God's adopted children. And that identity must override and inform every other part of our personality. So I cannot respond in kind if somebody has been mean to me. If somebody gets a promotion ahead of us, we, we learn to celebrate because we know that the promotion comes from God and look we are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Already. We are already joint heirs with Christ of everything in the universe. And whether he wants me to hold that position as a janitor or a CEO, that really doesn't matter. We are both on the deed to the universe. It's Jesus' name and Bobby's name and Sunil's name and Son's name and my name, all equally on that deed. So the third aspect of taking up the cross means to obey Jesus whatever the cost. Go to my father. Um, uh, So here's a message I get from, from God. He said, I want you to go to your father and ask him to forgive you for not being the son you should have been. I was absolutely offended by this request, I'm sorry command. My father cheated on my mother when I was three. They were divorced. He was only peripherally involved in my life. Why should I apologize to him? But God reminded me of the verse, honor your father and your mother. There was no if in there. There was no as long as they do so and so. It was honor your father and your mother. And I'm ashamed to tell you, I told God I'm not doing that. And I shared my conversation with Dana, and she said, well, I think you, I think you better do what God says to do. Well, yeah, but what does she know? <laughs> so after m- several, several months, I finally relented. And I said, okay, uh, God, I'll go. And he lived in Placentia, which is part of the southern edge of Los Angeles. And then God said, and um, I want you to know that he will not reciprocate. Now in the back of my mind, there was a thought that if I went to him, he was gonna say, oh son, forgive me for not being the father I should have been. And so when God told me that my father would absolutely not reciprocate, I got angry all over again. I said, I'm not doing that. And I went back to Dana, and I told her about this next conversation with God, and she said, this annoying habit, (sighs) I think you better obey God. It took me another, about three months to to say, okay. But by the end of that month, I really wanted to do it. I wasn't resigned to do it. I had a heart to do it. There's a difference. God wants surrender, not simple resignation. And then when I said to God, okay, I'll go, then he said, and I want you to take Quentin with you. Now, that's my middle boy. He was about eight years old at the time. And I said, God, I'm going to be humiliating myself in front of my son. I said, I'm not doing that. I guess you can see a pattern in my life, huh? <laughs> so I went to Dana and I said, I said, you won't believe what God asked me to do or told me to do. And with her annoying habit, she said, I think you better obey God. And it took me another series of months. For And, and during this whole time, God did not beat on me. He did not pound on me. He gently, lovingly, but persistently talk to me. So by the end of that, I had this desperate desire to go to Placentia, apologize to my father, and take Quentin with me. And I made an appointment. I drove up there early one Saturday morning, and it went just as God said. I went in, and my father was sitting there. I told him that I had given my life to Jesus Christ, and he showed me that I had not been the son I should have been, and I apologized, and I asked him to forgive me. And he said... Son, I forgive you. He said nothing else. I didn't expect anything else because God had already told me he wouldn't say anything else. I took him out to dinner, uh, lunch. Quentin and I drove back to San Diego and my father died five months later of prostate cancer. I didn't know he had cancer. But until that conversation, I hadn't spoken to him in maybe 10 years. It means obeying Christ whatever Christ asked you to do. Paul said, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. One of Jesus's chief commandments again is go and make disciples of all people groups. So there is this price of discipleship. If we reorient our our identity, we must see ourselves as Christ. We must put our will into his hands. We must obey whatever he wants us to do. And, and the first thought, if you're thinking about this reasonably, you'll, you should be thinking, God is going to ask me to do something I don't want to do. All right? And, and if that's the cost of discipleship already, so inwardly you're kind of doing like this toward God. I, I'm, not, I'm not buying into this following you and this discipleship thing. I don't want to surrender my will that way. I don't want to have my identity uprooted and changed that way. I don't want to do that. But then here's the promise of discipleship. If all of this sounds a bit daunting, I want to let you in on a secret. And it's really not much of a secret. God has wired us for commitment. We are made with a desire to invest our lives in something. It is inescapable. When you go home, yesterday I had a chance to watch one 15 minute segment of the USC Notre Dame game and I was amazed at how many people had painted their bodies the school colors. You look at Southeast football, they paint their bodies the school colors. We are made to invest ourselves. Lyle Alzado was a famous football player, invested his life in football only to die of brain cancer because he was illegally taking steroids to make himself stronger and faster. Lyndon B. Johnson, former president, invested his life in politics and died embittered. On his deathbed, Mao Zedong asked his physician of 20 plus years, is there any hope? A mother invests her life into a son and he calls only once or twice a year. Regardless We look at people in the military, people in sports, people who have their careers, and you find that you are investing your life. You are made for commitment. God has so wired us that we cannot remain uncommitted. And so the issue is not whether we should be committed. We're going to do that inevitably. Unless there's a small segment of the people who don't do that, but that's a really small segment and they, their absence from the whole proves the point. For most of us, we are wired for commitment. So Jesus comes along and, and, and says, because I've wired you for commitment, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to pour your life into something of eternal significance. You're not just gonna pour it into a football game. You're not gonna pour it into a company you worked there for 20 years and then they leave town without telling you, I'm going to let you pour your life into something that that will make a difference to you now and for eternity. So in this text, there is an incredible threefold promise in following Jesus. First, we will gain eternal life right now. Right now. Now the flesh... especially if if you look at my flesh, you realize it's getting weak and it's decaying. But the inner man grows, or woman, grows spiritually day by day. And one day we will shed uh, this tent and God will give us a new body, but we now have eternal life. We don't get it when we die, we get it when we receive the salvation of Jesus Christ. And so we get to experience a taste of that now. Jesus says, I have come to give you life, and life what? More abundantly. And so you will be able to get more enjoyment out of simple things. When we were driving in this morning, my sweet wife asked, what's on your wish list? And I was confused. I mean, well, my wish list, I want all my children to come to Christ and be, no, 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 I mean, like, what do you, and I sat there, and I thought, my goodness, I'm really content. I mean, maybe this, maybe but I couldn't think of a whole list because I was so, I was content. Um, and not because I have everything, but because I have everything. A- and I have, and I, I shouldn't say I have learned, I am learning to rest in Christ. As St. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. Uh, Second thing, uh, or the the part of this promise, we will be rewarded beyond our wildest imaginations in heaven, and those rewards start right now. Right now. So, uh, when in the... um, So, and then the third thing is that, that we will celebrate not fear the return of Jesus. So let's, again, look at this eternal life aspect that we experience right now. And again, it doesn't mean we won't face physical death. It means we will not face spiritual death. And right now, we will experience that richness that we call eternal life. I love to tell the story about my maternal grandmother, Big Mama, who was 4'6" but well, we called her Big Mama because of the force of her personality. She was quiet, but she just poured out love all the time. And her specialty was a lemon pie with a graham cracker crust. And it had to be heated and then cooled in the refrigerator. And so it was kind of a long process, but this this pie had just the right amount of, of lemoniness, and sweetness, it was like a perfect blend. But it would take like four hours to be ready. And so Big Mama, after she had finished, would let me take the spoon and go around that bowl and lick the spoon. And the pie is coming, but it's not ready yet. But I can lick the spoon. And that's kind of what we have now in this sense of eternal life. Well, we're gonna experience it fully, but right now we really do get to lick the spoon, and, and that gives us anticipation of how great the pie will be when it's ready. Well, the second aspect I said is that um, the benefits of following Jesus start almost immediately. Um, Yesterday, Thanksgiving, we had invited a young man who who attends Harbor Mid-City, got a fascinating background. He was adopted from a foreign country, and when he turned 18, his parents said, okay, you're on your own. And they literally turned their back on him as though he did not existed. And, it, it, and the young man is brilliant. He's, he's like a nuclear physicist or something like that right now. Uh, he's like Sunil, you know, really smart guy. Um, and, and he was invited to Mid-City uh, by a young lady named Mary Orton. And he and he shared at our Thanksgiving, then we asked everyone to share something about which they are thankful. And he shared that he was aimless, without family, until Mary Orton invited him to a harbor service. He had never heard anything about Christianity. And he came, and the people took him in and adopted him, and he said, and they're now my family. So... He had not expected this at all. And yet he is experiencing this greater fullness as it says in the words of encouragement, you you may lose family and house, but, but I will give you more of that right now and in the life to come. And that's what this young man is experiencing. So your family is not limited by race, geography, culture, or politics. And there is another promise implicit in the stated promises, we find ourselves. We find out who we really are and what our purpose is. I don't care what culture you go to and what language you speak, everybody has the two burning questions. Who am I and why was I born? These are questions that exist in every culture. Uh, This makes sense um, we know ourselves, how better to know ourselves than to draw clor- closer to the one who made us <laughs> and who knows us better than anyone else. And the part of knowing ourselves is ironically turning away from ourselves and turning to Jesus. And how can we know who we are without knowing our purpose? And how can we know our purpose without going to the creator who gives <coughs> and defines our purpose and enables us to fulfill it. It's just an amazing thing. Let me give you a small example. Dana and I have a Labrador retriever. He'll be four years old in April. His name is Boone, like Daniel Boone. And part of my job is to pick up his poop. Thank you, Dana. (laughs) And the other part of my job is to to walk him. So I walk him every day. And... um, And during the summer, when I can, I take him to the Coronado Dog Beach. Well, the first time, and you have to take him by leash from the car to the beach. And so the first time I took him, he had never been in water, okay? Never been to the ocean. Never been to the ocean. He had been in one swimming pool, but he had never been in the ocean. And so I took him and I took the leash off and he looked and he turned around and he looked at me and he looked and I said, go. And it was like, he just shot off, jumped into the water. He didn't stand on the edges as the tide came up and went back. He ran into it. And you, I, they say that dogs can't smile, but I'm telling you. <laughs> Boom smiled. He realized through me that he was born for the water and he played until he was utterly exhausted and I took him home and he crates at the foot of our bed. I swear that dog snored like a 50-year-old man. (laughs) Well, you and I were born or I should say reborn to follow Jesus and we will find ourselves and our purpose as we follow him. So I'm not saying that you and I are dogs, but this concept of sharing the gospel and making disciples of other people, that's our ocean. We were made to swim in it. And you will never know the joy of swimming in that ocean unless you swim in that ocean. The idea of following Jesus and making disciples of all nations is what we were wired to do. Without knowing Christ, we were wired to commit ourselves and to invest our lives into something worthwhile. But having been saved, God now takes that innate desire for commitment and focuses on something with eternal value. Now, one reason these promises are so amazing is that everyone carries some kind of cross. It just dawned on me as I was preparing for this sermon I know the particular, the peculiar cross of which Jesus speaks is the cross that comes from following him. But to the extent that we uh, associate carrying the cross with uh, hard times or struggles or difficulties or adversities, everybody has those. Everybody. Um, Like the young man I told you about whose family turned his back on him, when he turned 18, and for, it wasn't because he re, was rebellious, he was a compliant son. It wasn't because his grades were bad, he was getting A pluses, the guy was taking, what do they call, AP classes as a junior in high school. And it wasn't because he wasn't athletic, he was one of their cross country athletes. I don't know why they turned his ba- their backs on him, but they did, and that was for him a cross a burden, a heartache, even though he did not know Christ. There's this old saying, into each life some rain must fall. Some people are born into dysfunctional families, some with physical problems, some in areas where there's little economic or educational opportunity. Some face persecution because of race or language. Uh, People, in other words, who do not know Christ have difficulties and struggles too. That is part of the human existence. At some point, all of us face adversity, circumstances we prefer to run away from, uh, illness, financial problems, you name it. But only the cross carries with it the promise of present and future rewards. Only the cross says, I will take every suffering, every pain, and every hurt, and I'm gonna make it come to your benefit. All things, Paul says, now listen to this. All things work together for good to them who love God, and who are called according to his purpose. So I've could, you know, The world says no good deed goes unpunished. And the Bible says no good deed goes unrewarded. Here's the difference. The cross is hard, but it has dawned on me that life without the cross is so much harder because of the end game. What does it matter if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? The renowned mentor of an aspiring uh, artist was in the hospital, this is very recent. This guy has been a star in the Los Angeles art scene. And now he's in a hospital, no visitors, terrible illness, perhaps fatal. And he says to the young man he's mentoring, I'm only human. It had come to him as a realization, because of his frailty, that he wasn't a superman. He wasn't a superstar. He said, I'm I'm only human. The end game confronts us all. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we lose nothing of lasting value, and every day stand to gain more and more eternal riches. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So the price of following Jesus includes difficulties, struggles, opposition, and efforts. Jesus gives us fair warning but he also gives this audacious promise that the benefits of following him will far outweigh the cost. And knowing that everybody is going to face these difficulties but have no promise of gain, to only look back, what is that quote from Robert Frost? Nothing to look forward to with hope and nothing to look back to with gain. So let me end with simply the praise of following Jesus because in that text, if you see it, Jesus says, I'm coming back, and there is both a sense of doom and celebration. Doom and celebration. Doom for those who have rejected Christ, celebration for those who have received him. And the picture that dramatizes this for me is the... Last game of the NBA Finals between the Miami Heat and the Oklahoma Thunder. I don't know if you saw that. Teams battling mightily, great physicality, great athletes. And in one picture, there's LeBron James and his team, confetti falling from the ceiling, champagne being poured over their bodies, weeping with joy. They are overjoyed. And then the camera uh, moves over to the thunder. And and they are also crying, but but they're crying with heartbreak. There's no confetti, their heads are down, and all they wanna do is run away. And Jesus says to us in this text that there is a praise that comes, that one day when he does return, we're everything that we have suffered for him or done for him, even though we've experienced some benefit now, when we see him, it will be such a celebration and will put in context the great gift he has given us because he died on the cross for us and did all the heavy lifting himself, himself, asking us only to believe and to tell people about him. Father God, we just thank you for everything that Jesus Christ has done for us. We thank you for the sweet invitation of following him and making disciples of all families. We ask that you would give us such a heart to do this, that it would be a punishment to tell us to stop. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.